Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Ali Al-Hori, a linguist, an academic, a researcher of note from Saudi Arabia. Dr. Ali Al-Hori, welcome to Lost in Citations. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Today's paper is Re-examining the Role of Vision in Second Language Motivation, a Pre-Registered Conceptual Replication of You, Dornier, and Sizer. Before we get into the paper, let's learn a little bit about your background. You got your PhD in Applied uh, Linguistics with, with Dornier and Schmidt. Were you really interested in motivation first, and that led you to Dornier? Or were you interested in Dornier, and that led you to motivation? Well, they are inseparable, are they? <laughs> and uh, and um, it's it's just you know, journey and motivation. Like uh, you know, you can use them in association games. You know, if you say journey, people will say motivation. If you say motivation, people will say journey. So I was fortunate that he accepted me as a PhD student when I applied. So you before that you got uh, an MA in applied linguistics at Essex University in yeah. 2006. So can, can you talk a little bit about your journey from your MA to your PhD? Um, I'm not really familiar with with the, the UK so much. Is Essex and Nottingham, are they, are they in close proximity to each other? Well, not really. You know, you would need to travel quite a bit. It's not like, you know, an, hour, an hour's drive. So they are in different places. Um, Essex is, is closer to London. Okay. But Nottingham, it will take you around three hours by train to get to London. Why did you choose Essex? Well, as an MA student, that was one of the options available. I was, you know, in a hurry and um, there there was no particular reasons. I, I had offers from, I think, three other or three universities in total. So I decided to go to Essex and it was okay. Uh, I, I didn't have that much experience to be selective at that point. I see. And how, how soon after did you start your PhD? That is a funny story. You know, I, I first, after reading some of Zoltan Dornier's books, I sent him an email asking him whether it is possible to be his PhD student. So he replied to me the other day saying, sorry, I, I um, have too many students. I cannot take more students. I need, you know, at least three more years before I have a vacancy. Whoa. One year afterwards, I sent him a reply saying, so is there any updates? I've been waiting <laughs> for one year. <laughs> <laughs> nice. This time, I don't think he replied to me. I don't remember a reply from him to the second email. The following year, I sent him another email. Also in reply to the first email, I'm saying I've been waiting for now almost three years. Is there any vacancy? So he did reply to me this time saying, you know, like, okay, so you have been waiting all this time. Send me a document showing why you are strong enough to study at Nottingham. Whoa. So it was like a challenge to me. <laughs> now, at this time, I wasn't just sitting, you know, 
you know, watching YouTube and TV, I was doing research. I was mm-hmm. reading his, his books and his articles because I was really interested in this subject. So I wrote him a long document saying what books of his I read, the papers I read, and showed him a paper that I wrote on my own and collected my own data from my institution, saying this is the paper that I did during the time I was, I was waiting for you. So he was impressed and he decided to accept me. How many PhD students does he have at a given time? Well, maybe I think six, I think in total, something around that number. What's what's that relationship like between the PhD candidates? Because my background is in music, so... If you were going to choose, for example, I, I played the trumpet, so I, I chose this great trumpet teacher from Canada, and there was people from all over the world that wanted to study with him. And then, you know, he was the link between us, of course, but then we all kind of became friends. Is it is it a similar sort of situation? Do you, do you often meet together as a group, or is everyone kind of doing their own thing and just meeting with him one-on-one at, during their own schedules? Um, we, we do meet with him one-on-one, but we also have a reading group for the motivation uh, students studying with him. Uh, he is not involved in this reading group. It's for the students only. And we have a nickname for it. We call it the Motivation Gang. <laughs> and it, it includes some of the students that have graduated, including Phil Hiver and Zana Ibrahim and some of the other folks, Christine Muir and, and, uh, and you, you know, the author of the paper, she was with us in the re- reading oh. groups. Letty Let Chan, Letty Chan also was with us. She's another, you know, former student of Sultan's. So we were together meeting pretty much, I think every two weeks or something to read a paper and discuss it. Did you become good friends? Uh, I know you. I. I mean. I. I think I might know the answer, um, but was it was it a process where you became sort of close with with this group quite quickly? This evolve over time because, you know, you you've done uh, publications with Phil, Phil Hiver, and I know that you know Christine. So how how did that relationship involve evolve? Sorry, it, we we are still in touch. We have now a WhatsApp group. And you won't believe the name of this group. It's the the Zoltis. <laughs> I'm going to post the link to this podcast to that group, and let's see what they how they react. Oh, that's great. That's 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 really funny. So during during this group, what what kind of papers did you read? Was it you're not just reading Dornier? You're reading other papers too, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We're reading, you know, the latest thing appearing and um, motivation, particularly. And um, you know, we pick a paper, we read it at home, and then we meet and discuss the design, the analysis, um, the conclusions, and you know, other things. You know, just general open discussion about it. Was there any sort of competitive aspect to this group? Because, like you said, it, it was it was it was hard to get in. Um, you know, Dornier is synonymous with motivation, 
essentially, if you are a PhD student of Dornier, you have a you have a a bright future in academia. When you got into this group, did you feel a bit of competition? Was it like a healthy competition, or I mean, it seems like all these people seem quite nice. So, uh, but from the outside looking in, a competitive atmosphere to get into the to get into that that small group. I was just wondering about that dynamic. Uh, no, the answer is the short answer is no. There, there wasn't any actually competition because we were students, so it was really too early to you know decide to fight with each other, and, <laughs> too and early. we were, yeah, and uh, <laughs> and we were doing research on different areas anyway hmm. so we weren't doing really narrow you know uh, phil hiver for example who is interested in complexity theory more i was doing research at that time on implicit attitudes christine was and 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 zana ibrahim was doing research on uh, dmc's directed motivational currents letty chan and and julia you we're doing research on vision. So we were, you know, all over the place. We didn't have, you know, very, very, very narrow, narrowly close to each other. Okay, now, let's back up another step. Before you, you came to England, how, how good was your English? I just, I'm so impressed by anyone who speaks a second language as good as my first language. Like I'm stumbling and bumbling all over the place. Um, and this is, you know, my first language. I, I don't think I'm studying Japanese now. I don't think, I don't think I could ever do an interview like this in Japanese. Maybe that's that's a goal for my future self in 20 years from now. It's really hard to imagine. How, how was your, you know, your your language journey bringing you, you know, to England and then doing your PhD all in English? Um, what what was that like when you when you were living overseas and, and you were living over there? Did you have time to to speak, you know, Arabic or because uh, I struggle with that here in Japan. Sometimes I, I want to speak English, but then I feel like, oh, I need to speak Japanese all the time to get better at my Japanese. What what was that like? It sounds like there was other people in your same situation. You said Leti Chana, that's a Japanese person, I'm I'm assuming. So Yes. Um uh, no no uh, she's Chinese. Chinese, okay. Um yeah. Oh Leti Chan. Okay. So Chan in, in Japanese is like uh is is almost like a nickname. For a for a girl, so that's why I thought I heard that. So what was it? What was that like um, going going through? Because you know, doing a, an MA and a PhD is difficult enough, but doing it, you know, in a foreign country and all that stuff. What what was that like for you? I have bad news for you. If you are not very good in your first language, mm. you will struggle in your second language. Oh no, that's why. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, this is not scientific. This is just my own experience only. And uh, because I think, you know, the first language feeds into the second language. I think there is a connection. It's not my research area, but just my own experience as a learner of English. And um, I think, you know, languages are in the end connected in the brain. You know, if you are good mm. in one, then this will help you become good in the other one. So you didn't have any sort of any sort of issues with uh like missing speaking speaking Arabic or or anything like that or or feeling like uh, oh I need I need to read uh B 
because I have to read in English all the time. I just, I wish I could just read something for fun in, in Arabic or like, how did you, because I feel like I really struggle. I really struggle with that. Like I, I almost feel guilty if I watch a movie in English because I'll say, oh, I need to get better at my Japanese. Like I'm constantly worried about getting better at Japanese because it's just not good enough. You know, learning a language is really incremental. You, mm. you know, according to some estimates, you need like seven or eight years of constant immersion and exposure to the language before you can become fluent. So it, you know, doing some practice for a couple of days or a couple of weeks is not going to have a noticeable impact. There might be an impact, but it's so subtle that you don't experience it or you don't feel it. And mm. then you become discouraged saying, you know, I've been trying, I have been reading novels and, but nothing has changed. But actually there is a change, but you may not notice it in the short term. So it's just a matter of practice. It's, you know, I, the way I see language learning, it's a skill. You develop it just like you develop your football skills or your swimming skills, or in your case, your music skills. Mm. Right. It just needs practice. And with more practice, you know, practice makes perfect. That's actually the secret recipe that everybody knows. So in your in your career now, do you also publish in other languages or is it almost entirely in English? I haven't published in, in Arabic apart from some OPED newspaper articles. Um if I do publish in Arabic, I, I don't expect it to be a lot, but I may, you know, do some translation work here and there. I may publish, you know, one or two Arabic journal articles here and there, but I don't expect it to be something, you know, I, I would like to focus more on English because when you publish in English, it's a, it's a global language and you will have a lot wider audience than if you publish in another language. Well, I follow you on Twitter, and most of your tweets are in Arabic. I noticed that, which I thought was cool. That's true, but if you go to my Facebook, you will see that it's all exclusively in English. That because of the my, you know, the, the guys in Twitter are different from the guys in Facebook, and I'm talking with them in the end, right? I'm not talking, you know, in the void. So most of the people I, I talk with on Twitter are Arabic speakers. So I speak, uh, in, I, I tweet in Arabic, but on Facebook, it's in English. So I will post all the links to your, the different ways people can get in touch with you on, on the show notes. Um, and people can, can follow you in, 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 in lots of, in lots of different ways, which is great. Um, all right. Before we jump into the chapter, <clears throat> I wanted to touch on something that I heard you say in, in a previous webinar that I was fortunate enough to, to watch, a webinar uh, put on by Multilingual Matters where you a group of great authors talking about how putting a, a book series together. And one of the things that you talked about was how important as an academic is to read a lot, um, but then you need to have good note-taking skills, you need to have good organization, uh, time management, these sorts of things. I guess... I know it's a big question, but I guess for me, like personally, uh, if I'm reading or writing, if I'm in, in, in the midst of like a research um, period, I don't, I don't go on social media at all. Like I don't, I don't check my email. I don't do any social media until I get that chunk of work done. I'm best, you know, doing it in the morning. 
So that's more of like a time management thing. You are doing multiple, you know, doing lots of different articles. You're writing books. You're, you know, you're, you're putting books together as an editor. Um, you're also very active on social media. Um, so I guess the, the, it's the two questions. One, your approach to note-taking, and then two, your approach to time management. Okay, so let me tell you this story. When I first met my supervisor, Zoltan Dornier, the very first meeting I went to his office, so we had a general talk at the beginning, and he pulled a box from under his desk, and that box was full of pieces of paper, you know, smaller pieces of paper that's cut with, a, with scissors. Hmm. And he said, these are all my notes. If you don't have these notes, you cannot be a serious academic. You cannot be an academic without taking notes. That's what, that was one of the first things he told me in a supervisory meeting, because how important he thought it was. You see? So I said, oh, and I have to develop note-taking skills then. So I, you know, first followed his, you know, advice of taking, you know, A4 pages and cutting them in half and writing whenever, you know, he gave me some tips. He said, first, when you come across something interesting when you are reading, you have to take note of it. And how you do this is you transcribe or copy the exact quote. You don't paraphrase it because at some point later you want to read the original text to, to not your own interpretation at that point of what the author wanted to say. Mm. And with the reference, with the page number and everything. And so I started to do this and the number of my notes started to become bigger and bigger and bigger as you can imagine. I think it reached over, you know, hundreds and hundreds. Then I said, you know, I can't continue like this. I need to go to an, an online platform to organize my notes. So I used software called Evernote. Mm. It's free, freeware. You can just download it and there's a, uh, the free version is just good enough. And you classify your notes. It, it's easy if you are reading from a PDF, for example, you just copy the text into the um, a note in Evernote and just you know tag it or something, mm. and and it's convenient. It classifies your notes. That's the, the the difficult part. It's classifying your notes thematically, mm. because you may you may read something, you know, one author is saying so 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 and so. Two months later, you may read something else from a different author saying so, 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 and so. You may not see the connection between them immediately. But when you put one of one quote next to the other and think about them, then you say, wait a minute, there is something here. There is some connection. Then you start to form connections. That's the tricky part. And notes help you form these connections that might go unnoticed otherwise. Hmm. So, and it's important to go back and review these notes. You know, it's, 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 you know, useless to just have notes and never go back to them. One advantage of using Evernote is that when you go to Google and search for something, if you integrate, if you integrate, there is an add-on that you integrate with Google Chrome, 
then it will show you you have a note about this uh, this thing in your Evernote. Oh, that's also. cool. That's interesting. So hmm. it reminds you of things that you wrote, you know, several years ago or something. So I used Evernote, but I also came across another software package where it, it's also for note taking. It's called OneNote. Maybe it's more familiar to people. And OneNote, I also use OneNote, but I use it for different things because the format is different. Evernote allows you to kind of manage projects. You create what they call a book. And then within this book, you can have chapters. And within these chapters, you can have pages. Mm. So you can classify. I use it if I want to write a book or a project. I use it to put notes. Okay, so chapter one will be about this. Chapter two will be about that. When I come across something interested, I dump it under chapter one. Something else, I dump it under chapter two. Leave them there. When I come, I you know the notes will accumulate over time, so this helps me to you know organize my thoughts. All right, so that's that's note taking. What about what about time management? Do you, are you very strict with that as, as far as organizing your time, organizing your week, your your schedule? What I'm gonna what I'm gonna do on this day? What I'm gonna do on this day? Because I mean, just looking at your the, the production of works again like i mentioned there's so many different types of projects you're working on um they're all going on simultaneously and then you have the the lags with you know the the publishing lags but who knows you mm-hmm. at, at one point you might have had 10 things going on at once i have no idea how do you how do you yeah. keep it all uh straight in your head yeah time management is very important you know if you want to be an academic a professional academic you know, it's no different than being a professional, you know, football player, for example. Imagine how much and the football player is going to put into training mm. every day. You know, it's just, it will become a lifestyle. You cannot, you know, just oh, over the weekend I will read, you know, have a paper, half a paper for half an hour or something and consider yourself a professional academic. You know, <laughs> it's a lifestyle. You have to change your lifestyle into this job it becomes you know second nature so what i do i i you know i hold myself accountable i i downloaded an app that i have been a, a phone app an iphone app that i have been using for like i think 10 years now mm. it's called it's a diary called day one mm. okay so Every day, I add a new entry and say how many hours I studied on that day. Mm. And I set myself a minimum of three hours. And and if I reach that goal, I give myself a star. <laughs> if not, I don't get a star. <laughs> and and over time i see the ratio of the starred entries versus the non-starred entries so it's like a competition with myself so <laughs> you know i might i might you know say you know two hours and a half i push myself you know just half half an hour more i have a goal to reach you know so there is a goal that you know you are trying to reach so at the beginning i didn't set three hours this this changes from time to time when i was in 
doing my PhD, I had more free time. So I set myself a higher goal. Then when I'm busy, I set myself a lower goal. So this changes, it you know, can be different from one person to another. But I follow up with this diary and make sure that I hold myself accountable. And when I told Zultan about this, he said, what? You you calculate how many hours you work every day? He was surprised by this. Well, how? so this is, you try to do three hours a day, seven days a week? Yes. Yeah. And now... During during that three hour chunk, do you give yourself flexibility to jump around, or are you very strict on? Do you try to block out time for certain projects, or do you kind of let your mind compartmentalize and prioritize as you go? I I usually you know I do you know it's a challenge. You have to do some tricks to force yourself into being constantly motivated. So for example, just as you said, you block social media, you block things so that you can focus. Now this makes sense. You you have to be conscious of the distractors. So for example, in my office at work, the internet connection has some weird quirk in it. When you go when you go to work in the morning in my office and try to connect to the internet, it will tell you that there is no internet connection. And the only way you can get the internet connection back, I don't know why they have this weird thing. You have to open Microsoft Explorer, that very old browser, and then go to Google, not any other website. If you go to bing.com, it will say no internet connection. You go to Google. Once you open Google, the internet will reconnect. I don't know why. It's just like this. I, maybe they set it like this so that at the end of the working day, the internet disconnects unless somebody wants to connect it. They connect it manually. I, I don't know why. So what I do, I took advantage of this quirk. When I go to, to the office in the morning, I don't connect the internet because mm. I don't want to go into that rabbit hole of Checking Twitter and checking Facebook and checking WhatsApp and checking this. Every now and then there is a new message and there is a new notification and then there is that. So I don't just focus on my, I even try to avoid opening emails because emails can be draining. Yeah. Email after email after email and then in the blink of an eye, it's half an hour gone. Mm. And then what comes after this half an hour is that your energy is drained. Now, you should have, you know, put this energy into reading or into writing something. So there is a cost to this email also, the energy spending spent on it. So I try to avoid these distractors and just focus on my um, my work. And then when, when it's time for a break or something, then I connect the internet. Do you have a long commute to your work? No, just, no, just 15 minutes or something. Because there's uh, this book, you might have heard of it, it's called How to Write a Lot. And the author of the book recommends the, the, or what the best thing for him is he would, he doesn't even get out of his pajamas. So he'll wake up in the morning and go straight to the computer and, you know, no internet, but reading and writing for two hours. And, and And I've taken that to heart, especially in the era of COVID. So I'm wearing my pajamas for like four hours every morning. It's great. 
but I have like no distractions because even like a commute, you know, you might, you know, someone might cut you off in traffic. You get like, I, I, I'm kind of touching on your, the, the point with energy. It's not just time, mm-hmm. but it is energy, right? If you start wasting energy, I feel like I need like a, the freshest of fresh brain to get good work done. Um, and then at yeah. a certain point, you're kind of, you need a, you need a break, right? Um, yeah, true. But if you're, I guess if your commute is, is short, that's not really a big deal. You don't need to take yeah. the, the pajama routine to heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so the, let, other, oh, the, other part of, the other part of your question about time management and publishing, hmm. um, usually, as you said, the, the publication process is very long. There is a lot of waiting involved, and many people don't have this patience. This patience, you have to wait several months before you um, probably get a rejection, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what I do is that it helps if you have, if you are part of a great team. Mm. So here is, here is, you know, the thing. If you do a project solo, by definition, this means you have to do the work 100%, right? right? But if you do the work with another person, this means you do 50% of the work and that person will do the other 50%. This means you freed 50% of your time. Hmm. Now, this 50%, you can put it in another project and maybe the same person in your team can do the other 50% of the second project. So at you in the same duration, you will end up with two papers rather than one. Okay. Now, and it's, it's it's also fun to to work with other people rather than alone. It's motivating. The other advantage is that there's no guarantee that the paper you have been working on for two years will eventually mm. be accepted, right? Mm. You you need to have a backup plan. And if we extend this logic further, if you have a team, <clears throat> say, of three or four people, instead of doing... of the work, you do 20% of the work in this project and 20% of the work in the second project and 20% in the third project and so on, then you can work on multiple projects simultaneously. And this is how top researchers actually do research. And you go to their web pages and you see they have like 10 new papers a year. They are not working alone. They are Mm. in it with within a lab with collaborators. And this helps speed up things. The only drawback, of course, is that there is a lot of discipline now. There is a lot of focus. There is, you, know, you can be distracted easily with the different projects. So it helps if they are close to each other and the themes are related to each other and the team are harmonious and um, supportive. You know, this helps a lot. Do you have a set team? I I collaborate with Phil Hiver most of the time. I have collaborated with several other great researchers, but it's it's not like um it's whenever there is a chance, but mostly I collaborate with Phil Hiver. Because you've also collaborated with Peter McIntyre. Yeah, which true. in in my in my field of, uh, you know, language learning anxiety or you know the psychology that that I would say him 
and Elaine Horowitz were probably the top people in that field. So for you to collaborate with Zoltan Dornier and Peter McIntyre is is it's pretty amazing in in my mind. How did you end up getting with um with uh Peter McIntyre cuz he's not he's not as into motivation as as Dornier, right? He's more well, into anxiety. He's... Yes, true, but but he also, you know, student of Gardner's after all. And he I he Robert Gardner who is considered the founder of the motivation field, a Canadian. Peter McIntyre was his student and his protege. And um so he is into motivation and he's he knows a lot about the history of motivation. And so it, yeah, your your question was how I work with him or something. Yeah, I have known him at, at least as far back as 2013, and um, we have been in touch here and there. And um, I he helped me a lot because of his experience. I asked him, you know, questions, and he was helpful in explaining things to me. And I approached him with this idea of editing a book in honor of Robert Gardner, his supervisor. So he liked the idea. We were at a conference in Finland at the time. And so that project took off um, immediately. So just to tell the listeners, there's going to be a couple interviews coming up. We, You and I, we're going to record another interview and we're going to talk about that book, Contemporary Language Motivation Theory, 60 Years Since Gardner and Lambert, 1959. And I'm also going to be interviewing another one of your collaborators, Phil Hiver, in the book Research Methods for Complexity Theory in Applied Linguistics. So, um, wow, those are really two different types of books, don't you think? <laughs> I, mean, I know, yeah. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wow, impressive, very impressive. And in in the paper that we're talking about today, uh, there was so much, you know, math and statistics. Um, is is that also a focus of yours, or is that more uh, Phil's specialty? I I am interested in quantitative analysis, so I did the math and everything for this paper. You did? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> when did you Okay, so you studied you studied while you were doing your PhD, you were taking some classes in social science data analysis. That's where you learned the fundamentals um of the math that, that exists in this paper? Yes, so that's an there is an interesting story behind this also. When I was at Nottingham with Zoltan, he said that, oh, you know, Essex University has this great social science data analysis program where they offer courses. Why don't you go one summer, you know, and spend the summer there and take some courses? You know, he said that a previous student of his went there and he enjoyed it. I said, yeah, why not? That's, you know, I will go. So I went there and I saw it's the amount of courses on quantitative analysis from beginner to high adva highly advanced courses. So I took loads of courses there over several years, and that was very helpful. One of the things I learned from there is that when it comes to advanced quantitative statistics, like structural equation modeling, multi-level modeling, and some other advanced stuff, 
it's no longer at the same level as like doing a t-test when you want to do a t-test usually you can get you know andy field's book on spss and and the book will tell you click on this button and then on analyze and then move this variable to this field and the other variable to the other field and click OK and you will get the results. It's really simple. But when you go to more advanced statistical procedures, it's a mistake to assume that it will be the same thing. You will really need to take a formal class, perhaps a course on this with an experienced mentor, mentor to go through the many, many things and assumptions that you have to check for, the other variations, the advantages. It's no longer um, feasible to just get a book by Barbara Byrne on SPS, on, you know, AMOS or M plus, and she will tell you that, okay, click this and then click that, and then you do the analysis and then end up publishing the paper in a top journal. This is very hard to do. You need to take a formal, a, formal, a formal course with a mentor who will go through the different things. It's just serious study. It's not just a self-help handbook that will help you do the analysis. All right, let's jump into the paper. Um, Re-examining the role of vision in second language motivation, a pre-registered conceptual replication of you, Dornier, and Sizer. Okay, so... I guess let's start with why you chose to replicate the you et al study. First, you know, you, Julia, you, the first author, was with us, a PhD student at Nottingham. The third author, Kata Shizer, was also a student of Zoltan's, mm -hmm. but she graduated much earlier than us. So we are all the same team, you know, it, we, I, Phil and I, and the two, auth the two authors of the initial paper, the original paper, and Zoltan, we are all from the same team. And this paper appeared in 2000, you know, I think 15 or something. And at that time, we were at Nottingham. Mm. And... You know, we read that paper as part of that reading group that we used to have. And I noticed, you know, some things about the analyses that could be improved. And Phil and I sat together and said, okay, why don't we do the, an, a replication of this study? Because at that time, there was news about the replication crisis in psychology and the importance of replication and and all other um, you know, these methodological innovations and the failed replications in psychology. So he said, you know, it will be fun. Let's do this study. You know, while we are doing our PhD on different topics, it will be mm -hmm. fun. So Phil Hiver at that time was a part-time PhD student with us, and he was based in Korea. And he had access to all these schools and, and the resources to collect the data. So he said, okay, let's, you know, collect the data from Korea. And Korea happened to be just next door to China where this study was done. Mm. So we did not tell Zoltan about this project. 
<laughs> ah, really? <laughs> yeah, we did not tell him. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering about I was wondering about that. I I you know, before we get into the the meat of the paper, I was talking to you before we started interviewing and I was saying you're set, you're setting such a great uh you're being a great role model here where you're highlighting the need for replication and how important it is and you're highlighting the need to pre-register your research to, to um, for, for purposes of research ethics. And you're also highlighting that, look, replication is not necessarily an attack. And then I was, I was telling you before that, oh, now this can give other people courage to replicate um, other people's works because they can look, they can say, look, if Ali can replicate his PhD advisor, who happens to be Dornier, who happens to be the king of motivation, then anyone should have the courage to replicate anybody's work if it's done the right way, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. So we... Um, but just don't we tell them. With... <laughs> <laughs> well, first, first, the reason why we didn't, think, we didn't feel that we had to get first permission to do, to do this study Mm-hmm. And because the ethics were cleared from Phil Hiver's institution in Korea. Right. Okay. So we didn't, Nottingham was not involved in this. Hmm. And second, we didn't feel that we needed permission from the authors of any study to replicate that study. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That and makes sense. we didn't, fe- and we didn't feel that we needed to consult the author on anything. Because the paper is there, we go and follow the procedure they followed and we see whether uh, we get the same results or not. That should be the ideal situation because if you pick a paper, the authors might happen to be deceased. Does this Mm. mean that that's it? We give up, you know, the authors are deceased, so forget about it. No, this shouldn't be like this. The paper should be an independent document that there is a method a method section, there is an instrument section, there is a data analysis section, and these should be detailed, and you just go and allows you more or less to replicate this study. In many cases, this is not enough. The information in the, in the paper is not enough. This is a problem, but you know, this happens. So we did this study and and then I was at AAAL conference, and it was in the United States, after we did this study and we pre-registered it, and I met the editor of Language Learning, Pavel, and um, I told him that, you know, I, I took him on the side and said, you know, we you published a paper in Language Learning by our supervisor, and we have a replication of it. Since you published the, published the first paper, would you consider a replication of it? He said, yeah, why not? You know, we published the first paper, we would consider the second, you know, a replication of it. And then we told him that it's pre-registered and that piqued his interest because, you know, pre-registered studies have, you know, like this kind of, you know, prestige to pre-registration because, you know, you promise, basically pre-registration means you promise the readers that you will do the analyses in a pre-specified way. I love this. And yes, and yes, so he liked the idea 
And then after we wrote up the paper, we submitted it. There were five reviewers plus the two editors handling the paper and we received loads of feedback helpful very helpful feedback you know without this feedback the paper wouldn't have been like this if you compare the final version published in the paper in the journal with the first draft that we wrote it's completely different you know the level mm. but we took the feedback seriously it's you know when you get feedback from reviewers it's you know free feedback first from experts Second, it's, you know, the reviewers want to help you improve the paper and the editors want to help you. So we took that feedback seriously. We incorporated it and we wrote, you know, and it was, it went through like four rounds of revision, I think, or something like that. And in each round we had to write, to write an extended um, author response explaining how we responded to each point raised by the reviewers and by the editors. Mm. So we had to copy and paste each comment and write our reply to it. Mm. Can, can you talk a little bit about registered reports um, in the paper for people that are reading along? On, on page 89, you talk about one valuable initiative in, in this regard is registered reports housed at language learning where essentially if you pre-register your analysis or you you submit the registered report, you can get an in-principle acceptance before your data collection? I've never heard of this before. Is this only at language learning? Okay, so there are two things that can be confusing at first. Okay. There is pre-registration, mm -hmm. this is one thing, and there is registered reports. They look similar, but they are there are subtle differences. Pre-registration simply means you go to a website online. There are some websites specified for, for this purpose, like OSF, the Open Science Framework. There, this is the most popular one. There is another website called As Predicted. We know the, the implication here with the, is whether your results are as predicted really or did you change your mind through, you know, during the process. And for this, it's up to you. You go, you create a free account, you explain that there will be questions. It's a guided form that you fill in. You know, they will ask you about the sample size you plan, why you decided to to. Uh, get this sample size and how you are going to handle missing data, how are you going to handle the normality if you have it and other assumptions, how you are going to do the analysis, what test are you going to use, is there any post hoc analysis, you know, you just answer these questions. And then you click submit, then you will have a time-stamped uh, pre-registered protocols before you collect, collect your data. You registered December 22nd, 2016 on OSF, and I see yes. that, and you were, you were able to include that in the paper. Um, yes. So this is, uh, this almost should be required, shouldn't it? Why, why is this the, the, why is this the, um, the minority that shouldn't this, shouldn't we all be doing this? Now, there have been a few journals that have made this a requirement. So there is one journal in politics that have uh, made the, that has made this a requirement. They said experiments specifically. 
If you are conducting an experiment, we will not consider your submission if it is not pre-registered. That's great. And there has been, yeah, and there has been some, some, you know, people for and against voicing their opinions on social media. Some people are concerned that, you know, this will discourage exploratory activities and, and other things. So some people raised concerns. Some people were happy about it. For me, I think it makes sense. If you are willing to put all this effort to do an experiment, so you will think about your participants, you will think about the assignment to different groups, you will think about the treatments you will give to them, you will think about the instruments, you will think about how you will measure your outcome variables. And when it comes to the analysis, you stop. Why don't you complete, you know, your planning, right? You know, it's a whole package. It just makes sense. You you have predictions, you have hypotheses. That's why you are doing an experiment. So why not also think about how you will analyze your data? And as you said, this should be common sense. And I think in the future, people will look back at us and say, look at these people in the year 20 and 21. Why did they even... Why were they even concerned? It's like common sense. They may have nicknames for us in the future, like COVID heads or something. You know, why? <laughs> what's wrong with these people? You know, it's just so common sense. You know, why do you have to debate this? Well, the other thing is you can like uh, during the course of doing this project, recording podcasts. Um, I've been talking about my future research, and 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 in the back of my mind, sometimes I think, should I be saying this? Someone could steal my idea. Like if you pre-register, then you, it's a timestamp. You can prove that you had the idea first, right? Or unless yeah, the other person yes. steals your idea and pre-registers it before you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So if you go to the OSF website, you have the option of making your project private. And it can be private for, I think, up to 24 months or or something like this. So it can be private for, you know, two years or three years, I think. So it, this this wouldn't be a problem because normally you will be able to to do your um, project during this time. It would be unusual that you will need like five or six years to do this study. And even if you decide to quit or something like this, you can go and delete the project mm. from OSF website. And it the, some metadata will will still remain, cannot be deleted, that, like the title of your project and you know your name, but the details will no longer be available. I, I think I, I never deleted the project, but that's what their website says. Another benefit of this, which you talk about in the paper, is that this actually gives people the confidence to publish something where it doesn't necessarily go their way, or it or it goes against the hypothesis. Because I actually like reading papers that actually the hypothesis didn't come true, but there's still a finding. Um, I'm yes. almost skeptical of all these papers that everything happened exactly the way they thought. And it sounds kind of yeah. like re reverse engineering, that that idea where if you don't say what your analysis was, you don't say what your hypothesis was, then someone could go collect data, search through it, find a hypothesis, match the data to it, and, and publish it that way. And that's what people do. I mean, we all know that people do that. And when you read a paper, you know, and, and it's almost unfair to people that are doing it the right way, because I'm almost skeptical when I read a paper that everything went the right way. 
It just doesn't make sense to me. It's I, I, and you know, that's, that's a drawback of, of not pre-registering, I guess. Yeah. You know, you, everybody can claim that they thought of this hypothesis before the fact. Right. And, um, and people don't necessarily have to be intentionally lying because your intentions and what you want to do can change over time while working on your data because you might work on it for several months, right? And what you were thinking of in the first month might change in the course of this study. So writing it down and committing to it is good practice. Do you pre-register is this something that you do for everything that you do? I don't, I have like four, five pre-registered projects, but I don't do it for everything. I, you know, if I do a study, an initial study, I want to test the waters. I want to see how things go. I'm not making grand claims now. I just want to do a study and I'm planning to make this study a first in a series of studies. So, and this is the, now pre-registration is not easy. That's, that's one of the problems because you have to think in an abstract way how you will analyze your data when it comes mm. and you to anticipate the difficulties that you will come in your data. It's not easy because it's abstract. You don't ha have data in front of you. It will help if you have some fictitious data and you play around with it. Mm. But if you have a pilot study or an initial study that you did not pre-register and you have the results, you have you know the level of abstraction goes down a bit. And you can, you know, anticipate how you will need to analyze your data, how you'll go about doing that. So you know, it, you don't have to feel compelled to pre-register every single thing you want to do. It's if once you are ready to make a grand claim, then it's time for pre-registration. Especially if you are making a small-scale study, you want to you know test things. You are not sure. It's good to explore. It's always good. Do some exploratory but, studies. But for like a PhD student. Uh, like myself, this is something, this pre-registration process is something you, you have to do before you can even be approved to co collect data. So if you get used to this cycle, it would make, it would make sense that you could continue to just to, to sort of weave this into your routine of preparing for research, research, data collection, start, like, I'm really excited about this. I never thought about pre-registering before. And you kind of talk about this in the paper that replications are very rare in linguistics. Um, and you, you made the point in the paper, like, look, this is not an attack. I got to be honest. If I do if I do a research study, I actually want someone to replicate it. I want them to replicate it and see if they got the same results as me. I don't know why. I, I would be honored. And then the more people that replicate it, and if it, it keeps coming back, then it becomes a law, right? Isn't that what science is? Why is this strange? Yeah. Yes, true. <laughs> then like people if they keep they can make me have uh they can prove that i i created a law isn't that the most exciting thing that any of us could do if we if we find a law 
Yeah, I mean, laws in social sciences are hard to come by, but to find a robust finding, that's what, you know, everybody is looking for. And definitely, yes. And if it does not, if it's, you know, criticizing or failing to replicate a study or a finding that you did should not be seen as an attack at your per- at your person. Mm. Like, it's at the study. And unless you you consider you yourself and your findings are one entity, you know, you shouldn't do this. You should disconnect yourself from the findings. Try to be as objective as you can. You know, I did this study in this way and the results suggest that there is this pattern. Other people should come and do it independently. If you are the only person who can magically, you know, do this study, and find this pattern, then we have a problem. You know, why is it just you who can do this while other experts in your field, when they do it, they don't get this, you know, finding or this pattern. There's something fishy going on. So, yes, it should be encouraged. Replication is very important for a cumulative science. We cannot call our science a self-correcting enterprise if we don't have replication to weed out unreliable findings. You, you just can't have the cake and eat it, you know? So when did you tell Dornier? <laughs> After I graduated. <laughs> what What was that conversation like? Uh, no, I uh, already left in the UK at that time. You know, I, told, I asked him, you know, he's very busy. He's a very busy man, obviously. I asked him if he would be willing to read the manuscript uh of course we expected that he is too busy because we had we had a very short window to resubmit the paper for the revisions so he wasn't able to to read it but julia you mm-hmm. the other our in in our reading group was gracious to read the paper and give us some feedback and she was helpful and we acknowledged that in in the acknowledgments that um she gave us some feedback on this paper well, uh, I guess we're already past an hour, so um, yeah, but it's to... fun, you know. We can continue. Well, yeah, if you don't mind going a little bit, a little bit longer, um, I guess there's two things that I love about this paper. Number one, you had a sample size over a thousand, and credit to the U study, they had a sample size over ten thousand, right? So that that strikes my curiosity. And the other is that you were you were, you were questioning things. And you were you were being, you were being very specific about what issues that that you had. Well, maybe just to, I guess people can can read uh, read the paper, and I'm sure uh, they can contact you with, with questions. But I guess maybe can you just give sort of a brief summary of your main issue with uh, the original study, use you at Al's findings and how your replication findings differed from hers. Okay, so the the origin the 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 idea behind this paper is that vision is important for language learning, and this idea is relatively new in the field. Like, I guess less than ten years ago, it has started to gain prominence, and. Um, There hasn't been any good experimental evidence 
showing that it's actually effective if people visualize themselves in the future they will become better learners mm. and there is some evidence to the contrary and we review this in the paper from other disciplines even in sports psychology where there are loads of anecdotal stories about you know sports people who you know were in prison and they, they imagined playing a sport and then when they went out of prison they became top-notch experts in in their sports and but the actual evidence and we also uh, refer to a meta-analysis from sports the the evidence of the effect of vision is not strong if there is anything at all you know if there is something it's not that strong so we thought is it maybe exaggerated the role of vision and it has become a fundamental idea in modern motivation theory everybody is talking about vision so we thought okay so that's an interesting study to replicate and see what to what extent that vision um, contributes to language learning. So we did this study using structural equation modeling and as we explain in the paper the advantage of structural equation modeling is not like uh, to find something significant, it's modeling. It means you have like five or six variables and you model the causal relationships between um, or among these variables mm. and so the idea is not to find something significant significant or not just like you do a t-test or a correlation or regression it's whether your model fits the data or not mm. if it does not fit the data it's a confirmatory approach if it does not fit the data that is you do not trim the model, you do not delete non-significant paths, you do not do other stuff. If you do this, you can do this, but this becomes now exploratory. It's no longer confirmatory. Mm. You can always play around with the model. You can play, you know, add things here and there, add paths, look at something called the modification indices that the software, because the software usually asks you, tells you that if you add this link between this variable and that variable, it will improve the fit. So you add that link and then you redo the analysis and look at the results. And then the modification indices will say, if you also add this link from this variable to that variable, you will improve the model fit. And so you add these based on ad hoc um, calculations by the software. There, there's no theory behind them. You mm -hmm. can imagine a theory post hoc, but that's no longer confirmatory now. Mm. So what one of the points that we argue in the paper and we cite people arguing the same is that you should not delete non-significant links from your model. You have this model beforehand. You say that these three variables will predict this variable. And then in turn, this variable will predict the other variable and test the data and present it, present it as it is. We want to see the results. As a second step, then you can play around with the model. That's okay. People will know that this is the results of the confirmatory step. And this is the results of the exploratory step. 
And so you're the biggest change, you know, you talk about in the paper, there's three types of replications and you chose the conceptual replication. Um, you, you, you were looking at the intended effects, sorry, the intended effort scale from the U study. And when you were, when you started this replication, is that, is that the main thing that you noticed when you, when, before you embarked on this replication, is that the thing that kind of like struck you might be a little bit off or a little bit different yeah, I, than what you thought? Yeah, I have always had concerns about the emphasis on the intended effort. So basically what we are, you know, the main dependent variable used in the literature is the intended effort. As if, you know, people who report high intended effort, these are the perfect learners. Every We want everybody to, to report high intended effort. But very little attention has been paid to whether this intended effort scale is actually meaningful. You know, what is the advantage of a student who reports high intended effort versus a student who does not? And I have a meta-analysis in 2018, and I found that the link, the association between intended effort and actual achievement is very small, like 0.2 or something. It's not that strong. And if anything, it might, it might, you know, one of the other problems in the literature is the possibility of confounds. And in statistics, a confound means that there is an unknown third variable that is influencing the results and you don't know about it. Mm. Like, for example, your proficiency. Let's imagine that we do a study and we don't control for proficiency. And we see that uh, there is a relationship between intended effort and achievement. Maybe we see that it's very small. We don't know why it's not, it's small. But when we add proficiency, this is a hypothetical situation, we might find that actually people who have low proficiency are mm. the ones that will report high intended effort because they need to, to pass, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know this, these dynamics because we are not aware of this third variable, which is, you know, causing, you know, confounding the results. And then the other thing you found was there was an overlap in language within the scales, which was a great thing to pick up on. Um, especially if people are reporting in a second language, right? Were, were these translated into Korean or were they doing this in, in English? It was translated into Korean. See, I, I worry about that as well. I think you have to be careful about that. What, who, 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 for me reading this paper, those were like the three main weaknesses you saw in the U, U study, the overlapping in language, uh, the way they analyze their data and the use of the intended effort scale. Uh, can you or Phil claim which, which of those, or was this sort of a collaborative thing? Which of you thought of those three or did you, did you think of those at the same time? Um, you know, it was collaborative work. We worked on it, um, together, but to answer your question regarding the discriminant validity of the different scales, this is a problem we have in the field. Now mm. you ha we have, we have all these scales that, you know, have different names, but their content is overlapping. Mm. 
you see and now yeah. and are, are they really separate constructs or mm. are they the same thing this is a problem especially when your your participants are young students like you know young adults or secondary school learners now are these students really capable of making these subtle distinctions that we are hypothesizing or not maybe not you know they are just you know yeah i agree strongly agree you know mm -hmm. that's it we don't know maybe they don't make this um these subtle distinctions that we think they do and this needs a lot of psychometric work to, to validate these scales and whether they are distinct or not because if they are not distinct it's like saying you know having um, a motivation scale and then having another motivation scale but using a different name they're saying look the motivation a scale predicts motivation b scale yeah what did mm. you expect you know they are the same thing you know <laughs> pretty much the same thing did you expect something different you know <laughs> oh well, um, we could we could talk about this uh, for for hours, but I, I think I, I've taken up enough of your time. Um, and also, we're going to schedule uh, another interview where we're going to talk about the book that you did with um, Peter McIntyre, Contemporary Language Motivation Theory, 60 Years Since Gardner and Lambert, so people can look forward to that. And again, the paper that we discussed today was Reexamining the Role of Vision in Second Language Motivation, a Pre-Registered Conceptual Replication of You, Dornier and Sizer, 2016. Um, another thing, I guess real quickly to, to, to end it, I, I like the way the paper ended. It was a very short conclusion. I wasn't expecting that because I was, the way I was reading on the PDF, I, I, was, I, wasn't re I wasn't looking ahead. I was just reading and then and it was, it was a really great read. I had to take a couple breaks, to be honest. I, it took me a while to get through it because uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's there's a lot in there. Um, but then I, when I started to get to the end and it was a very short conclusion, I like that. Um, there, there wasn't else, there wasn't much more to say. I guess sometimes people think they have to write a really long conclusion. Uh, uh -huh. so anyway, just uh, a compliment. I liked, I liked the way you, you ended yeah, it. Would there you is, like... yeah. Go ahead. There is one, one thing that you mentioned brief, uh, briefly, which is about experiments. You said you are interested in experiments and, mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the things that we suggest for the language motivation field is to conduct more experiments rather than more correlation studies. Mm. Because after all, we are talking about causality here. You know, mm. let's not beat about the bush. If you, whenever you do, you know, some people do a correlational study and then say at the end of the paper, pedagogical implications, mm. right? Now, once you say there is pedagogical implications, means you are deducing causality from your results. Mm. If teachers do this, they will get that, right? It's causality. Mm. It's just, you know, not saying the words. Mm. So we encourage more research to, do, to check the causality between the variables in the motivation field because the results can be misleading. So let me give you another hypothetical example. Let's mm. imagine that um, somebody, you know, let's go out of, of motivations. Maybe the picture will be clearer. Let's imagine somebody studying literature. Mm. And this student isn't interested in literature. It just, it's a requirement. It's one of the courses that he or she has to take 
to graduate. It's just a compulsory course. Now, this student has no motivation to learn this course or to learn, to learn literature. But mm -hmm. now let's imagine that this student goes into the literature class and starts learning about all these literary devices and great quotes and other things. And as this learner learns more about these things, they become more interested. Mm. Okay. Now, at this point, let's imagine that a motivation researcher comes and gives this participant a questionnaire. Mm -hmm. And they measure their motivation to learn literature. And then they measure their knowledge about literature. And they found a, find a correlation. They say, look, motivation led to more knowledge of literature. Mm -hmm. While in fact, we know it's the opposite, right? In this example, mm. it was the opposite. So you can think of it as a loophole. This can, can be a loophole in, in, in correlational analysis. And we always hear that correlation is not causation. Mm. And because of these problems. So it's important that we do more experiments, more interventions, and not just rely on correlational research. Well, you're, you're speaking my language because I, I agree 100%. <laughs> and that's all, that's all that I want to do. That's the only kind of research I want to do. Uh, so it's, it's cool. I, I tend to go to a lot of conferences and I don't see a lot of, a lot of research like this in the social sciences or in language or linguist or linguistics. So it's very refreshing. And I think you're, you're doing uh, great work and thank you. Thank you for, for, for taking on this, um, endeavor and, uh, being a good role model for, for other researchers. So, and, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.